beautiful thing to see. And we've talked over the last several weeks about the good news that not only in Jesus Christ, through faith in what Christ has done for you, you are forgiven of your sins and you are given an alien righteousness to cover you that is not your own. So that when the Father in heaven looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus. And then he adopts you. Not only does he approve of you legally, but he adopts you into his family. And it's an amazing doctrine, this doctrine of adoption. And we have said that the doctrine of adoption is the Christian doctrine that only gets better. Because you see the amazing beneficence, generosity of your heavenly Father the longer you live, the more amazed by grace you are. We have been forgiven of so much. Amen? Why then is it so hard for us to forgive others? If you're willing and able, let's stand and we'll read from Galatians chapter 4 and then Matthew chapter 18. This is... God's very word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. Simon Wiesenthal became known as the world's most famous Nazi hunter. Tracking down Nazis guilty of atrocities after World War II. And you might understand why Wiesenthal took upon this role if you knew that he watched his grandmother gunned down on the stairway of his own home by SS officers. That Wiesenthal saw his mother herded into a cattle car with other elderly women, never to be seen again. That Wiesenthal had no less than 87 members of his family killed in the Holocaust. Can you imagine that? Wiesenthal wrote a book called The Sunflower, and in this book he recounts an experience he had when he was at a Nazi work camp many years prior, working at a hospital, kind of as an orderly, you know, sweeping floors, mopping messes up, taking care of the garbage, when a nurse walked up to Wiesenthal and said to him, are you a Jew? And she saw the red star of David on his shoulder. And so he said he was hustled down this corridor, up a flight of stairs, into a musty hallway, and into a room where there lay dying an SS officer, covered from head to foot in bandages. Only there were slits for his eyes and his ears, his mouth and his nose. And he recounts in this book, this interaction with this officer, this officer said to him, my name is Carl, and I must tell you of this horrible deed. I must tell you because you are a Jew. And Carl reminisced with Wiesenthal there in that hospital about his Catholic upbringing and how his experience at Hitler youth camps had completely killed him of his faith transformed his perspective of humanity and how one day Carl was with his unit in the Ukraine and they fell upon booby traps and it killed 30 of the men in his unit. And in an act of revenge, Carl said, we rounded up 300 Jews. We crammed them into a three-story house. We doused it with gasoline and we fired grenades at it. Carl said there was a man he'll never forget whose clothes were alight and he had a child in his arms and he covered the child's eyes. And next to this man was a woman who Carl felt undoubtedly was the mother and this father jumped out of that burning building and soon later his wife followed him. If they made it alive out of the house, the SS officers used them as target practice. He said, I'll never forget a dark-haired, dark-eyed boy who the SS officers were using as practice 
to set their scopes. He goes on in the story and he says to Wiesenthal, I'm left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew and that is enough. And I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it with a Jew and to beg his forgiveness, only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your forgiveness, I cannot die in peace. Will you forgive me? And Wiesenthal, who had been an architect in his early 20s, was there dressed in the garb of those who work in Nazi work camps with the yellow star of David on his shoulder. And he said he looked down at those bandages and he saw flies buzzing around the wounds of this SS officer. He looked out the window and he stood and thought for a moment. And Wiesenthal stared that SS officer in the eyes and he made up his mind. He turned around and walked out that room without saying a word. And Wiesenthal wrote a book called The Sunflower because he wanted to know if his crime of unforgiveness was pardonable itself. And so he asked theologians and scholars, poets and artists, was what I did pardonable? And one American professor said, the enormity of the crime exceeds all possibility of forgiveness. A novelist said, let the SS man die unshriven. Let him go to hell. I think I would have strangled him in his bed. And Philip Yancey, who writes of this account, says, I was taken back by the near unanimity of responses. I expected more of the Christian theologians to speak for mercy. But in a world of unspeakable atrocity, forgiveness seemed unjust, unfair, even irrational. We love grace. We love being the recipients of grace. We love kindness when it's extended in our direction. But the truth is we do not really love grace. We only love it when it is granted to us. And we're not fond at all of it when we are required to extend grace toward others, particularly others who have wounded us and others who have damaged us. We are not so fond of grace at all. But Jesus is clear. If you feasted on the Father's love as a son or a daughter, then you share that love liberally. 1 Corinthians 13 is called the what chapter? The love chapter. Love is not resentful. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. So what is the mark 
of one who has been adopted by God. What is the mark of sons and daughters of the king? What are the privileges that we have as an heir? What are the ways we should live that out? We forgive. The forgiven forgive. And I know that this is not easy. So would you take out your sermon outline and let's think together. In light of our adoption, brothers and sisters, forgiveness is essential. Peter walks up to Jesus and asks a good question, doesn't he? Okay, Jesus, how many times? How many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Jesus here receives Peter's question, and Peter undoubtedly is going for teacher's pet, isn't he? Because Peter says, rabbis would have said, how many times? Three. But Peter says, no, I'll double that and I'll throw in an extra one for good measure. Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? Expecting Jesus to look at Peter and say, oh, Peter, you so get it. You've got this thing down. You are like my model pupil, Peter. That is so gracious of you. Seven times, that's more than twice what the rabbis would have said. Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, oh, Peter, no, not seven times. I tell you 70 times seven or 77-fold. Your Bibles may say it either way. It means the same thing. I tell you, Peter, that when you are to forgive, you are to forgive and to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. There is, in fact, Peter, no limit to forgiveness. Put it like this. If somebody were to say to you, how many days should you love your wife? And you were to say to them, seven. I shall love my wife seven days. I will give her seven days of my love. We would hear that and we would say, that's crazy. That's irrational. You've made a vow to her. You love her every day of your life. Or someone were to say, how many days should I love my children? And they should say, I shall love them seven. I will give my children seven days of my love. That's crazy. But yet when we are talking about forgiveness, especially for those who have wounded us very deeply, that seems like a lot, doesn't it? Now let me help you understand what this text is and is not saying. This text is saying you must forgive. This text is not saying you must forget, by the way. You hear this all the time. You hear people say, well, forgive and forget. If I hire a babysitter to take care of my children on a Friday night and he or she abuses my children, I will forgive them in my heart, but I can guarantee you the next Friday night that we need to go out, I am not dialing that number. You don't forget. Listen, that's nonsense that you forget. The Bible doesn't speak about things like that kind of nonsense. You don't forget. But the Bible does call you to forgive. Why? Because the forgiven forgive. 
to live in light of your adoption in Christ. Forgiveness is essential. Listen, the Bible misuses things all the time. It misuses statements like, judge not lest you be judged, and therefore people will say, don't judge me, as if we are not supposed to judge obviously wrong behavior. You can't simply forget when you've been wronged. It cuts deep, doesn't it? You are called to forgive. The Bible says that forgiveness is essential for the people of God. Let's talk about the damage of unforgiveness for a second. Unforgiveness, and you know this to be true in your own heart, is like a prison without walls. Jesus tells Peter this parable. He says, one man is forgiven a great amount, and then he turns to another man, and he won't forgive him. And the person who ultimately won't forgive ends up where? Where does the text say that this person ends up ultimately? Where does it say he ends up? In jail, in prison. Now let's dig into this a little bit because we don't really know what monetary currency amounts are in the ancient Near East, so let me help you. A denarii was one day's wage. So if this man is owed 100 denarii, if you work for 25 days in a month, for example, that's, that's four months of wage. If, if that's an entire quarter of work, that's a pretty good chunk of change, isn't it? That's a lot of money. But this man who is owed 100 denarii, four months of work, had been forgiven. What does it say? 10,000 talents. What's a talent? A talent was 20 years' wages. So let's do the math together. 10,000 talents is 200 years of wages. That's an extraordinary debt. That's a generational debt. That's a debt that goes far beyond your lifetime, which is why he says his wife and his children will also be thrown into prison, wouldn't it? It reminds us, doesn't it, back in the day when Adam sinned and Adam bequeathed to us an extraordinary debt that now we are all guilty of, the debt of our sin. And we have been co-belligerent in that betrayal of what God has called us to do and to be. And there is generational effects to that sin. When I heard a story this week about a father and a mother who were, were arguing in the kitchen, and the father looked at her and he said, no. No, 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 not in my house. You will not do that to his wife. In an extremely berating, disgusting, horrible way. And two months later, this man was telling the story. He walked by his child's room. His child is two years old, and the child had set up his stuffed animals in his bedroom. And the child was saying, no. No, 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 you will not do that in my house. And the cadence and the tone sent shivers up the man's spine because that child had overheard him talking to his wife like that and was able to say it two months later to his stuffed animals in the exact same way. 
Listen, this, when Jesus says to forgive it, a seemingly infinite number of times, he doesn't just pull that number out of the air as though that sounds like a lot. He's not just alliterating what Peter said. No, Jesus is going all the way back to the Hebrew Old Testament when in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech, the degradation of culture and a family had already de- increased so much so that Lamech had become a polygamist and had two wives. And Lamech was harmed. He was hurt with an insult. And Lamech, in his revenge, said, if I am crossed, listen, if I am abused or I am hurt, I tell you what, you can cross me, but you're going to die. I will avenge my perpetrator 77-fold. And for those without Christ, it is a culture of resentment and of bitterness. But here Jesus in Matthew 18 is taking that back and saying to Peter, I am pulling back from Lamech, that culture of bitterness and resentment. And I am telling you, Peter, and you, O people of God, that when it's time to forgive, you forgive. And you forgive. And you forgive because there is in the church for the people of God a culture of forgiveness. And it is radical and it is amazing and it is hard. But the forgiven forgive. Not long ago, uh, GQ magazine put out an article about the effects of solitary confinement in the prison system in the U.S. It's a fascinating article. And in this article, they pull quotes from 48 wardens and uh, people who have been in solitary confinement themselves. And as I read this article, what struck me was the amazing similarity between solitary confinement and the U.S. prison system and many people with whom I speak about their difficulty forgiving others. Craig Haney of UC Santa Cruz, who's a pioneer in this field, calls solitary confinement a social death. The prisoner, he explains, grieves for the person that he used to be because he sees day by day his life is slowly ebbing away by the solitary confinement. It's the same that's true with resentment, isn't it? One soldier said, listen, I I am there for eight years in solitary confinement. And in my eight years, every day is the same. And what is traumatizing about it is that people outside those walls have eight years of experience. And I have one day. Every day is the same. This same dynamic that's at work with people who are in solitary confinement is at work with people who refuse to forgive. Frederick Buechner said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the bitter, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel both of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in so many ways is a feast fit for a king. But the chief drawback, Buechner says, is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And perhaps Anne Lamott said it best when she says, not forgiving someone is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat.
Why is the damage of unforgiveness so great? Because forgiveness is first a spiritual matter before it's a relational matter. Do you think you must forgive people only when they are repentant? Some of you will be waiting a very long time if that's the case. Do you think you must forgive somebody only when they come and beg you for it? Some of you will never see the face of that person you struggle to forgive again. Notice what Jesus says at the very end of his parable. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother when he comes to ask your forgiveness. Is that what the text says? No, it is not. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, in your heart. Because refusing to forgive forgiveness is like solitary confinement. Unforgiveness is a prison without walls. And listen, nobody said that becoming an adopted son or daughter of the king is easy because Jesus asks extraordinarily hard things of us. But yet when you forgive someone, you unlock the prison door and the prisoner is set free and you are the prisoner. So, where then do we start? There is something first to admit. In the parable that Jesus told, one man owes another one a 10,000 talents. As I said, it was, an inordinate, it was an extraordinary sum of money. And he for, has a hard time forgiving another person who, what, owes him four months' wage. The first thing that you must admit is that you owe a debt you cannot owe. And listen, I know we all know the Christianese. I know we've heard that term again and again here. But sometimes off of our hardened hard heads bounces this notion that we are sinners and that we really do owe an infinite debt. Have you ever seen the movie Dead Man Walking? It came out years ago. It's a story of a young man named Matthew Poncelet and his relationship with Sister Helen Prejean, who in the movie, Helen Prejean is played by Susan Sarandon and Matthew Poncelet is played by Sean Penn. And if you've seen the movie, the story goes that Matthew Poncelet finds one night two teenagers, a couple, and he abuses the woman and then he kills them both. And he is found guilty of his crime, he and another person. And because there's another person involved in this crime, he has vehemently beheld that he was innocent his entire time in prison. And now, weeks before his execution, he is befriended by a Catholic nun named Sister Helen Prejean. And he is hard. This other guy did it. He refuses to admit that he had any complicity in his crime when the evidence was obviously pointing in his direction. And Sister Helen Prejean said to him one day, Matthew Poncelet, 
you are going to hell if you do not own up to what you did. And something inside Matthew Ponsonet broke when she said that to him. And it was the love of this woman toward this prisoner. And he broke. And the movie shows how he just confesses the details of this crime. And then he sets about to write letters to the family of those he killed to ask their forgiveness. And he is a broken man. But his sentence had been set, and to execution he will go. And in the most moving part, the climax of the scene, is where Matthew Ponsolet is raised up on the gurney with the ivy in his arms, and they are about to open the port through which the drugs will flow into his veins to kill him. And on the other side of the glass is this woman who had befriended him, the only friend he had in the last dying days of his life. And she comes up to the glass just before they open the port, and she says, Matthew Postulate, you are a child of God. And in that scene, something inside me just kind of recoils, if I can be honest with you. Because they take great liberty to show you the details of his heinous crime. And there on that gurney is a man who had been forgiven of killing two teenagers in a park. Heinously. And yet, the story shows us that he was broken and repentant and trusted in the gospel. And he was therefore a child of God. Friends, the thing that you must admit is not that you have killed two teenagers in a park. No, that you killed the Son of God. That you are not able. Where do we even start with forgiveness? You cannot even begin to forgive somebody until you can say in your heart, I am Matthew Ponsolet. Till you can look yourself in the mirror in the morning and be shocked by grace and mercy that the person staring back at you has been forgiven of the heinous crime of killing Jesus. You can't even begin to process your need to forgive. Your heart will be hardened until you can say in your heart, I have been forgiven 10,000 talents. Only then will your hundred denarii that you are owed begin to look possible. There's something to admit. You must admit that you are Matthew Ponsolis. In every offense, the cost of the damages must be borne and taken on by someone. We believe that this world is held to justice, which means that every injustice of the world is received by someone, somebody takes that upon themselves. And if your family has gone through an extraordinarily difficult situation, you know the pain of this because your family has absorbed the blow of the treachery of someone else's decision. But if you are to admit that you are the one who has been forgiven 10,000 talents, the only worldview and the only faith that possibly makes sense and gives credibility to the offer of forgiveness is if you know that there is one who is able to absorb the blow, who is able to absorb the injustice of that wound, because either you will absorb it yourself 
or you and your resentment will try to push it back to that other person as though you are trying to punish them. And if you're going to be able to forgive, you must first admit you've been forgiven 10,000 talents, but you also must admit that God is the better judge, that your Father in heaven is the better judge, and that he is not going to let every injustice of the world just go, whew, that was awful. Oh, well. No, every injustice of the world was absorbed upon the work of Jesus on the cross. And on that cross, he absorbed the blow that you feel right now. He absorbed that blow that was done to you, the injustice done to you, so that you, in 2017 on Mother's Day, might be able to have such courage, knowing that you're forgiven 10,000 talents, to take that to the cross and to say, God, I do not fully understand it, but I trust that you are a better judge. I will not eat rat poison and wait for the rat to die. Here it is. Help me. Help me. Help me to forgive. You must be able to admit you're forgiven 10,000 talents, and you must be able to believe that God the Father is a better judge. Vengeance is a lazy man's justice, Christians. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do you believe him at his word? Please don't take vengeance in your own hands by refusing to forgive. See your Savior absorbing that blow. Admit that you are Matthew Pontowitz, that I am Matthew Pontowitz. That we were there when Jesus died. And we are forgiven our 10,000 talents so we can take the 100 denarii and we can have the courage to offer forgiveness to the one who has done us harm. And then lastly, what do you do? You take your offense to the cross and you let Jesus absorb the blow. And I know this is not easy. And sometimes it takes talking about it processing it, to do it. And in a town like ours, even in a town with all of Tulsa Metro, friends, it is so tempting to hide in our unforgiveness. Please don't do it. The elders and I beg of you, please don't hide in your resentment. Take it to the cross and let Jesus absorb that blow because only he is able to do it. In fact, only he has already done it. And your father is a better judge. And he will vindicate all that has gone so horribly wrong. And as J.R.R. Tolkien once said, he is going to make everything sad come untrue. Do you believe that? Is there someone you need to forgive? Because you are adopted sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave than a son, and if a son, then an heir. Come out of your solitary confinement. Open that prison door and come free, O prisoner. Let Jesus, your Savior, embrace you in his arms as he welcomes you to his table. Take that blow to the cross, and you will be able to be free. The forgiven 
forgive. Amen.